Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning and welcome to Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Gene Wilhelm. Today is Wednesday, June the 9th, 2021. And I want to welcome all of our listeners on KEDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 88, pardon me, 98.3 in Central Texas and KINF 107.9 in Palestine. This is going to be an all-priest program today, both the first segment and the second segment. And uh, so it's going to be rather interesting. Who's our first priest on deck? Father Greg Gerhardt from the Diocese of Austin. He is the vocation director. Okay, here here we go with Father Greg Gerhardt. I'm with uh, Father Greg Gerhardt, the vocation director for the Austin Diocese. Uh, Father Greg, it is so good to have you on this program. Thanks very much. Glad to be on. I miss you so much from when you were here at St. Mary's. and <laughs> I appreciate it. I miss those years as well. Uh, we're pre-recording this before the Saturday ordination of priests. And how many yeah. priests does the Austin Diocese have being ordained this year? We have two priests who will be ordained this year. Um, right now, Deacon Enrique Sadacoeto and Deacon Callan Sweeney. They'll be ordained priests this Saturday. Okay. And uh, how many deacons were ordained this this year? Uh, three. Three. So we had Deacon Fernando Ricaud, Deacon Jacob Perleman, and uh, Deacon Sam Bass. So they were just ordained transitional deacons. Oh, and just a, a little bit of information. Traditionally, or typically, how long is the preparation for a man who wants to become a priest? Sure, it can be between seven and nine years. So someone who enters seminary after high school uh, will take nine years of seminary formation before his priestly ordination, and someone who has a degree already from college will take seven years. That begins with um, some some philosophy studies between two and four years, depending if you already had a degree or not. And then there are four years of theological studies along with a pastoral year. Uh, between year two and three of your theological studies, which is kind of like a an internship in a parish where you get some on the on job uh, on site training uh, for what it's going to be like to be a priest. Did, what, let's, well, what happens if, say, the uh, the candidate for the priesthood uh, has something like a philosophy degree from a university like uh, University of Dallas or Franciscan University of Steubenville, someone that. Uh, a university that that the diocese knows is authentically Catholic? Sure, that's a great question, and it kind of brings into um, into relief that formation is a whole lot more than just uh, going to class, just having academic formation. Uh, Jean-Paul II wrote a um, monumental document in priestly formation called Pastores Dabovobis, uh, which became the kind of um, source for uh, that all seminaries look to to base their formation of men to the priesthood on. And there's a lot more than just intellectual formation, although that is one of the four pillars, but you have human, intellectual, spiritual, and pastoral formation. So even if you already have 
a philosophical degree from an authentically Catholic university, there still is necessary two years of, uh, of formation before you're ready to move on to theological studies or um, what the new documents are calling um, moving from the discipleship stage to the configuration stage. So you want to have that great foundation in being a disciple of Christ before you move on to really configuring your heart to be a priestly heart, uh, one that can serve the people. So even if you already have a philosophical degree, there would still be two years um, necessary before moving on to the theologate. Is that roughly the equivalent of a novitiate in a religious order? Well, um, that's actually something that the um, that the church is looking at as well. What they're calling a propedeutic year. It's not really in place yet, but uh, but no, what I've been speaking about isn't that propedeutic year. But um, but soon the church is going to be moving towards having something like a novitiate, uh, a propedeutic year that's really going to prepare you to engage seminary formation. I can remember when I entered seminary, I kind of felt like at times I was thrown into the deep end and just had to learn how to swim. So this propedeutic year is going to give you um, what you need in terms of prayer, in terms of basic catechism, human formation, so that you can really engage seminary formation and not miss not miss a beat when you get there. I'm. You talked about the pastoral year, or, or a year or mm-hmm. two years. Uh, how how is that handled, and how important do you see that as being uh, for a man who's going to be a priest? Sure. So that happens between second and third theology for us here in the diocese of Austin. And you find a, a parish and a pastor that's going to be a great mentor who will be able to walk with you. You have monthly meetings with other men who are also going on pastoral year in various parishes throughout the diocese, as well as throughout um, various dioceses. We send our uh, men to several seminaries uh, that are not just unique or not just forming men for the Diocese of Austin, but are forming men for several dioceses. And all of the men that are on pastoral year during that time will come together in order to meet, share how it's going, compare notes, and uh, and grow together. So uh, you're there for nine months. You're getting various opportunities to lead in the parish. You're getting to live in the rectory with the priest and see what it's like um, to be a priest in the parish itself and not just in the classroom. And so you come back to seminary, having had that opportunity, uh, you come back to seminary with different questions in your mind. When you take theology classes, um, as we know, like whenever you are engaging in a class, what you bring to bear on that class is highly dependent upon what you've experienced. So when you've had a, a pastoral year, you're able to bring a whole lot more experience to the class, ask new questions that are going to be very helpful uh, in the final years of your studies. So that's kind of... Um, the other thing that it really did for me is it really boosted my confidence. You know, there was a lot of class that I had had at that point, but when I really got to put it in practice and get the feedback from uh, the parishioners, it really gave me a great confidence, kind of confirming my call that, yes, God has given me the gifts and talents to do this. I'm certainly not a finished product. I'll be in formation for the rest of my life, but it gave me a confidence that I needed to go forward. I'm sure that uh, one of the things that you experience in a pastoral year is that you are living with men of different ages rather than basically being in your college dorm. <laughs> That's true. So so seminary, you know, for, for the most part, there is going to be an average age that might be close, uh, at least to what I experienced. But there's also men who um, are there in their second career, men who are there who are younger than um, than the average age. So you do have a bit of an experience of living with people who are not um, not the same age of you as you, but, uh, but certainly when you go into your pastoral year, I was uh, living with someone 
who was a brand new priest. He had just been ordained and I was living with someone who had probably been ordained 15 years or so. So that was a different age than me Got to experience, um, yeah, their wisdom, what they've already, you know, gone through in their priestly lives. One who was just going through in his first year. So I got to see him kind of fall in love with the parish and begin to practice his priesthood, his priestly ministry. And one who, you know, already had a lot of experience under his belt and was able to share with me some of his wisdom. The Austin Diocese has been blessed with a number of priests over the last several years who are entered the priesthood as a second career. That's true. That's true. Actually, the class before me, um, all five priests were moving into the priesthood as a second career, and they bring yeah, a wealth of experience, background, wisdom, um, expertise that uh, is a real blessing to the diocese. How does uh, the Austin Diocese compare to other dioceses? Maybe that's an unfair question in, in recruiting men to the priesthood and bringing men to completion to the priesthood. Uh, are, are we comparable or are we a little bit ahead, a little bit behind? I think fairly comparable. Um, it ebbs and flows. I actually just went to a vocation director conference for the region. There was a vocation director from Houston, from Corpus Christi, from Fort Worth, um, from Lubbock. Uh, so we were all trying to compare notes, and it's hard to compare apples and apples and oranges and oranges when because dioceses are very different, different amount, uh, different amounts of people in the diocese, different land size of the diocese itself. Um, So I would say, you know, we've been really building on a vocation program for the past um, 10 years or so that uh, that has allowed us to have a good number of seminarians in the diocese. I will also say that uh, the need is still very real and uh, priests are starting to retire uh, as they, you know, they get up in age and uh, the need is is growing and growing as more and more people move to the diocese of Austin. So even though we might be doing comparable or perhaps a little bit um, more than some of the dioceses around us, the need is still growing at a rate that, that makes it a very urgent um, pastoral necessity for, for priests, for laity alike. That was kind of the idea behind the initiative that we had this year called by name Sunday, that yes, priests are going to be able to preach on vocations, but the laity as well from the pews, seeing the young men that have the signs, that have the gifts, talents, qualities, characteristics that show they might have a vocation to the priesthood, that you as a layperson are able to tell them, listen, these are the things that I see in you. Have you ever thought about being a priest? It would be amazing if you might be able to serve the church in that way. And that can be a seed that's planted. And uh, so that's, I, I will say that we're doing, you know, fairly well um, compared to dioceses around us, but still the need is, is very great and it's growing as more and more people move to the diocese. Father Greg, uh, one last thing I'd like to ask you about. If there's a person in that's listening to this or someone who's listening knows of a young man that they think may have a vocation or the young man thinks he may have have a vocation, how would they contact you? Or if let's say there's someone that's listening to this, that's in another diocese, what would they do? Sure. So someone who's living in the diocese of Austin, um, whether you are thinking about a vocation to the priesthood or, you know, someone who, who might be called, you can find all of my contact information at our website, godiscalling.me. Very easy to remember, godiscalling, not .com or .org, godiscalling.me. My contact information is there. You'll be able to reach out to me and be happy to help and have a conversation. We also have great resources for those who are discerning their vocation to grow in prayer and to learn how to listen to the voice of God and follow wherever He leads. 
As someone who's listening from another diocese, I would recommend just looking up that diocese's website and trying to find their vocation director and giving them a call so that they can start that relationship. Thank you so much, Father Greg. I've been interviewing Father Greg Gerhardt uh, about uh, the priestly ordinations in the Diocese of Austin and the process of becoming a priest. Father Greg, I appreciate you so much, and thank you, and I hope you have a great day. And thanks very much. Thanks for having me, and same to you. I, I kind of stepped on it there, didn't I, Thaddeus? <laughs> hey, we won't talk in, about that, Gene. We won't tell anybody about that. Let's okay. move on. We have just a few okay, minutes we left. Just a few minutes. Uh, we we need to do the Saint Joseph's prayer since this is the year of Saint Joseph, and uh, we have uh, Father's Day coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, our Father is Saint Joseph. Let's do that prayer. O blessed Joseph, faithful guardian of the my Redeemer Jesus Christ, protector of your chaste spouse, the Virgin Mother. Of God, I choose you this day to be my special patron and advocate, and I firmly resolve to honor you all the days of my life. Therefore, I humbly call on you to receive me as your adopted child, to instruct me in every doubt, to comfort me in every affliction, to obtain from me all the knowledge and love of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and finally to defend and protect me at the hour of my death. Amen. Amen. And the uh, state of the day actually is a Jose or Joseph. Oh, perfecto. Uh, St. Joseph de Anciata, and he was the, uh, a uh, missionary in Brazil, mm-hmm. and uh, his father was Basque and uh, was basically had to leave Spain because he got crosswise. He basked in the glow of being yes. a Basque. Yes, and Charles V was there, and his mother, although being Jewish, was a distant relative of Ignatius of Loyola. Wow. He is known as the patron of... Communicate of literature and art and music in Brazil. He translate. He spoke Spanish, Portuguese, and Tupi and Latin. And he taught Latin to the Tupi, the Indians who spoke Tupi. He Amazing. developed their what a diction, polymath. And he developed their dictionary and grammar. And uh, he he just is a remarkable man. I suggest that you look him up on the. Uh, you can find his initial information on Catholic.com. He was a Jesuit, you say? A Jesuit. And How the, interesting! And after the break, we will have another Jesuit here Father, in the studio. In the studio, Father John McManlin. and I am so excited about all of this. And we listen to this, and we just really know that there's so much. Uh, once you go to. Uh, Catholic.com to get the saint of the day. Uh, I suggest you go to the Irish Jesuit website that has a rather interesting article upon him as well. Probably a lot more information than I can possibly give you at this point in time. And again, we are going to be back at what, about two minutes? Yeah, about two minutes, and we're going to have an in-studio guest, Father John McManaman, a Jesuit. Yes. And hear about his... Interesting activity, Yes. Thank you so much. We'll be back right after the break. Welcome back to Red Sea Roundup. I am your host, Gene Wilhelm, and I want to welcome all of our guests on the various 
outlets, KEDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, and KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine. And if you would like to call in for a question or comment with my guest today, Father John McManaman, we would be very appreciative of that and do what we can for you. Uh, we kind of ran out of time the first seg- segment, and Thaddeus has an announcement that he really needs to make. Yeah, we were taking so much time to hear all about the fascinating history of our Jesuit missionary saint of the day that we didn't get a chance to talk about the family fun day that's coming up on Saturday, June 26th at Henderson Park and Bryan. Everyone's welcome to come out. We want to give people a chance to bring their families together again and get out. And we're going to have a, a kickball game scheduled and we're going to have some crafts, craft demos um, not demolition, but demonstration. Okay. And we're going to have face painting, um, all sorts of fun and games. Bring a picnic, bring a picnic blanket. Um, we've got, you can bring some adult beverages to add to the merriment, and we're going to have some live music. And it's just going to go from, uh, I believe, 10 a.m. to 2. Dennis is probably cringing because I'm getting the times wrong, but all the information's on the on the website, redsearadio.org. Click on the banner there. Family Fun Day, June 26th, Bryan Park, Bryan, Texas, Henderson Park. If you're in our Waco listeners or Palestine listeners, you want to come over, come on over. Now, Henderson Park, is that the one down off of Palisoto? Yes, I believe it is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a nice, nice facility. Got yes, a lot it is. to do there. Nice yeah. pavilion. Yeah. It'll be fun. Okay. So I've got with me Father John McManaman. Good and morning. Good morning. It is so good to have you. We talked, what, two, three weeks ago. And you are such an interesting person. I just, I, I'm so excited about having you here. Thanks very much. I hope I'm interesting today. <laughs> I think on. you will be. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You, you uh, come from an interesting family. I do. I was very blessed. Um, I had three brothers. My parents were very active Catholics in the parish. We grew up in Lakewood, Ohio, which for those of you who don't know it, is the lovely first suburb west of Cleveland as you travel along Lake Erie. So it's kind of a working-class area, wonderful parish where my um, both my parents were involved in a number of activities. We all went to the grade school there, St. James, and then um, from there, um, following my father's footsteps, we all went to the Jesuit High School in Cleveland, St. Ignatius. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we have this wonderful, creative way of naming our institutions. Yes, we do, don't we? <laughs> Ignatius, Loyola. And so uh, are there a lot of plaques in the hallway from all of your family members that went to school there? You know, the ones who have plaques in the hallways are my parents again, who were, my father was president of the Fathers Club there. So again, very actively involved um, in helping to support the educational work of the institution and my mother served for well over 20 years as the uh, executive assistant to the principal of the school, five different principals over that period of time. So so you couldn't get away with anything. <laughs> Not much. <laughs> Between my parents and my, the Jesuits, yeah. Well, you were, when did you realize you had a vocation? I started to think about it in my junior year of high school. Um, at that time... We were very fortunate to have both a number of Jesuit priests and then what we call scholastics. They're 
Jesuits still in training prior to their ordination as priests who teach in the school and conduct a number of the extracurricular activities. So we had a lot of interaction both in the classroom and outside and beyond the classroom with the Jesuits. And I started to become intrigued by what seemed to me, and I think I only realized this over time, was their embracing intelligence as a gift from a very generous God and trying to put that intelligence at the service of God's people. And I think I found that very attractive because I was a good student in school. I always enjoyed school and found the motivation to do the work very easy. But to have that sort of direction and goal um, with a gift that comes from God, I thought was a was a great thing. So now, I have to jump in here because I'm a product, a product of Jesuit high school in Denver, Colorado, Regis Jesuit. And that I'm getting a little teary-eyed because that's perfectly describes what it was like to, to go to school there in the early 1990s. The same, same sense. And I'm a product of a Jesuit high school in Wichita, Kansas. It's wonderful to hear you both speak of that. I, I always, and um, I was very pleased after I entered the Jesuits to be able to go back and work in that high school for a while as a teacher. Was your mother still there? She was, in fact. <laughs> I lived, we had a small Jesuit community some ways away from the school, so I knew her schedule pretty well, and if I didn't have a ride home, she would often (laughs) plug in and help out. She did a lot of great things. Um, But I think our high schools have, particularly throughout the history of the organization, have done a really good job both in setting goals and achieving them. I mean, that very short phrase we have of, persons for others, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a challenge in a very good way um, to direct the institution toward a most um, appealing and I think a most Christian goal. This scholastic, it's a three-year scholastic program. Uh, We just talked with uh, Father Greg Gerhardt, the uh, vocation director for the Austin Diocese, and they have a pastoral year, which he says is basically an internship. And it, it's as you were talking about the scholastics, I, I had to think it's basically the same thing to get the man out to get some experience of what it's going to be like to be a Jesuit priest later on. But it's a three year period, isn't it? It is a three year period. Um, when I actually did it, there were some changes going on in our formation program. So I only did two years myself. Um, but it is very similar to what you described. An internship, I think, is a very good word. Um, Since we have an apostolic direction as a religious order, I think after a period of kind of isolation for purposes of study, and for Jesuits it was both a kind of a humanities foundation and then a a pretty rigorous philosophical training, then I think it's both very healthy and very helpful in this ongoing discernment of vocation to have some time working actively in a Jesuit apostolate. And that's what that period, which we technically call regency, when scholastics are teaching. And I must say it was a unique experience as a Jesuit because you're interacting with these wonderful young people as a Jesuit, but not yet as a priest. 
So you're actually closer in age to them in most cases. Exactly. I think it was only about five or six years older than the seniors. So, mm. so you, so that comes, so that it's a, two years of novitiate, two years of, of, of junior, and then uh, what you, four years or three or four years of other of is it philosophy? It, yeah, that was the traditional program. That when we entered, though, the the first two parts were merged. Oh. So I was able to finish uh, my philosophical training and my undergraduate work in about five years. Okay. Then I stayed on to do a master's degree in history, which was by choice. Now, when when you thought you had a vocation, had you considered anybody other than the Jesuits? Mm -hmm. I actually, um, even when I was at the uh, St. James grade school in Lakewood, the sisters would send... Um, a certain number of the students, mostly when they were in the seventh or usually the eighth grade, to the minor seminary, which still existed in Cleveland, just so you could get a, a direct experience. You'd talk to the both the seminarians and the staff. Mm-hmm. They, it was a, basically you spent the weekend with them living and doing the things that they did. So that planted a seed, and um, I was quite impressed by the the work that the Cleveland Diocese did. But I think once I got to the high school and saw the opportunities and the sorts of services that the Jesuits were providing, then I think my thinking shifted over time. Mm -hmm. I still, it wasn't until late in my senior year that I made the decision, though, because I had some ambivalence. What it was in the back of my mind, I think, was I was thinking I could do a lot of these things, some Someone along the lines of what Thaddeus was saying, but I don't have to be a Jesuit necessarily to do them. But then there was a moment where I started to imagine in my mind, but what if I joined? And I, I had that experience that St. Ignatius describes so well of consolation, um, and I think that confirmed my thinking about the vocation. Now, you entered the Detroit province, and there are some rather famous contemporary Jesuits from the, De- the, the Detroit province, including Father Mitch Pacwa, who is a contemporary of yours, and then the, uh, the, the man who is the head of the Vatican Observatory, whose name I will not even attempt to pronounce. <laughs> uh, we can call him Paul. Okay. Father Paul. Okay. So you've, you travel among some really great guys. I've been very fortunate. During that period of undergraduate and MA studies. I was doing those at the University of Detroit, which is now the University of Detroit Mercy after I had graduated, the two schools merged. And we were, while we were studying, we lived with the Jesuit faculty and administrators of the university. So the kind of religious and intellectual vibrancy was just um, exponentially increased by that interaction at meals, um, the kind of informal settings where you would get to know them. And then you would go off to the classroom and sometimes have them as your professor, which meant that you could then come home and if you weren't imposing on their time and their generosity, you could kind of pick their brains um, in these one-on-one conversations that, for me, in terms of my interest in history, were extremely formative. Well, so what you're really saying is that the, the community life among the Jesuits had a great influence on you in, during your formation. Exactly. And there were 
individual Jesuits um, who had an enormous impact on both the way I approach teaching, the way I approach research, the way I try and integrate those into my priesthood. I got to see in them doing that and doing it so well for young people that uh, it was tremendously inspirational. Well, when during this period of time, you were telling me about somebody that that kind of pushed you in the direction of history, and you you were thinking about something else before you met this person. That's right. I had done a um, kind of an internship when I was in the novitiate. We had a very skilled liturgist who was also the assistant to the master of novices, Father Jim Sarek. And I worked under his tutelage, kind of organizing um, liturgies both for the community, but then we had people from the surrounding community. They were welcome to come to the Sunday masses at the novitiate. So a lot of the planning and things, and I'd gotten very interested in um, what I was doing with him and thought this might be a good direction. Then toward the end of the novitiate, uh, a very dynamic Jesuit came in and gave us a short course on the history of the Jesuits and the combination of intelligence and humor that he brought to that little course then returned me to what was had been my first love, which um, as a high school student, I loved the classics. I continued to study them when I got to college. Um, the classical tradition, how it played out in the history of the Western world, and particularly how it became so integral to the educational programs of the Western world. So when I was studying at the University of Detroit, I met a Jesuit who taught Renaissance and Reformation history by the name of Father John O'Malley. I will now shamelessly plug anything you can find that he has on the web, any of his books that he's written, are just a wonderful immersion in our Catholic historical tradition. And so what you found out is that, that all of this part of history was so integral with the Catholic Church. Exactly. Exactly. That the interplay between our faith and culture is um, so profound, and therefore the immersion in culture simply enriches um, your understanding of the faith, I think, mm -hmm. in a wonderful way. And I think that the, the kind of matrix for all that is education. So then you got your bachelor's degree from the University of Detroit. That's correct. And you went on to get a master's degree as well mm -hmm. and probably under Father John's tutelage. He did. He, um, he was extremely generous, um, not only through teaching, but he introduced me to research at um, the Vatican Library in Rome. So that and in those days, it was not via Internet. Exactly. They hadn't scanned the documents, which I kind of, I'm probably going to date myself or age myself here, but I look upon that with a bit of nostalgia, holding the, the document in your hand, being able to, to use it, to thumb through it. It just enhanced the sense of I'm doing something historical, you know, mm -hmm. and since they had limited seating in the library, you needed to kind of establish a credential that what you wanted to study needed to be done there and could not be done somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And he was extremely helpful, both in helping me to get the credential, helping me to do research. So you, so you were already in Rome at that time? I was. I was privileged. I did two summers in Rome while I was doing my master's degree. Um, 
which again had multiple benefits. It helped my Italian. All the documents I was reading were in Latin, so it was um, refining my Latin for that work. But I lived in a Jesuit community that I eventually joined um, when I did my theological studies in Rome. And you were privileged and blessed to be able to do your theological studies in Rome as well, right? Was, so that tells me that, that you had you had something upstairs or you wouldn't have been there. <laughs> we can hope. <laughs> I, I think I was very fortunate in kind of presenting my plans to my Jesuit superiors, and they were very flexible about listening to my rationale and then allowing me to have input and eventually to pretty much endorsing most of the requests I made. And I did ask to go to Rome. I knew it would be beneficial across the board again. And my Italian had to get better. All of the studies we did, except for one seminar a year, were in Italian. So mm-hmm. you would, professor would be lecturing. Any questions you had, you posed in Italian. The only common language we had in the community was Italian, and there were Jesuits from up to 30 nations and maybe 40-some provinces represented in that community. So all of a sudden, um, something that I had heard all my life, that this is an international body. You mean the Jesuits or the church? The Jesuits and the church, you know, both. I experienced there in Rome because a number of my fellow students came from dioceses all over the world, Mm -hmm. including um, this diocese, the bishop actually, Started at the Gregorian the year I finished there. In Rome. Bishop Joe? Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, interrupt this conversation for a minute. Uh, we, if you are listening on KEDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, and KINF in one. 107.9 in Palestine. We welcome your calls or comments. Uh, and if you have a friend that you think would uh, enjoy this, it also streams at redsearadio.org. And my guest today is Father John McManaman. He's a Jesuit, and he has a very interesting story to tell, and it's very interesting what he's doing now. And let's try to get to, to that point sometime. Uh, so you, you, you said it was so interesting to be with all of these folks. So then you came back from your, your, uh, your studies in Rome, and you went and got a Ph.D.? That's correct. I went to the University of North Carolina because they had both a very strong historical program but a, a very strong tradition in classics. And the research I was hoping to do was going to be um, based upon uh, a body of orations from the Renaissance period that were modeled very closely on speeches given by the Romans in ancient times. So that kind of ur experience of Renaissance, what they were trying to do was promote this rebirth of classical culture in the 15th and 16th century in Italy. Then you were blessed with something else, a fellowship afterwards, right? Yeah, it was actually, I was had two wonderful fellowships, one from the American Academy in Rome when I was working on the dissertation research and then I had a postdoctoral fellowship from Harvard's Renaissance Center that's up in the hills just outside of Florence. So it was a really hard place to work and study, but, but you know, we did our best. Oh, I, I imagine you struggled through. <laughs> it was terrible. It was really hard. But you, again, you, 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 uh, in, in both of these fellowships, you saw the diversity of, of God's people. Exactly. And I made some of the closest friends I've had in my life at the American Academy in Rome, 
it's a community that combines young scholars with young artists and architects. So it tries to um, take advantage of the, the wonderful resources of Rome, both from a historical point of view and from an artistic point of view, um, sponsored by the United States government. So some of those friends are, one of them was the architect who built our new embassy in London. Um, another was the chairman of the classics department at Boston University, who's now retired. And I could go on and on about that group. Then at the Harvard Center, you were with the best young Renaissance scholars in the world, from Poland, from Hungary, from England, from Italy, from the United States. And were you able to live in a Jesuit community when you were at these locations, or did you live with other scholars? At the American Academy in Rome, it was required of fellows to live in the academy. So I belonged to a Jesuit community, and I would visit minimally once a week down mm -hmm. in the city of Rome. But the academy itself up on the hills, um, they supplied the room, and I took most of my meals there. Mm -hmm. In Florence at um, the Harvard Center, Villa Itati it's called, um, I lived in the Jesuit community, and then I would take the bus up to the center daily and come go back and forth, commute. Mm -hmm. That cut some of your uh, time, uh, Jesuits, uh, time to completion is typically about 15 years, isn't it? And you cut that short with some of the scholarly work that you'd done in preparation for your ministry or your, your ministry as a teacher. I think what might have shortened it a bit in my own case was the I was able to combine a couple of um, priorities in the same uh, moment of training and, for example, when I was an undergraduate, while I was doing some preparation in the humanities, I did a philosophy major. So I was somewhat killing two birds with one stone, if you will. Um, but I do think I maintain the Jesuit tradition of we're a bit slow learners in general. <laughs> so it takes us a while once we get in school to get out of school. Okay. And where did you do your tertiary? I did that in um, Los Gatos, California, Okay. Uh, over the course of two summers. And then part of that, um, the, we call it an experiment, and I did that experiment in the Bahamas. Oh, the, that must have been tough. That, that was very difficult, especially for one who loves the underwater world. But the bishop there was a Jesuit, and what was very helpful, if someone would come down for a period of weeks, is that he could give both his clergy and some of the um, religious sisters who were scattered all through the islands, he could give them some time off for, say, a family visit. Mm -hmm. For example, there was a wonderful um, religious sister from Maine, and I went to visit one weekend, and she introduced me to the parish and things. And then I went back for about a 10-day period, and she went home to see her family, which I don't think she had done for a period of years, actually. So. You I just want to jump in here and just say that, you know, in other contexts, saying that you were in the Bahamas and you were experimenting, that has a lot of different overtones. So just, wow, that's pretty, pretty humorous. Not that kind of experimentation. Not that things. kind of experimentation. Okay. Uh, I got off of planes and went through customs with no problems. So not to worry. Now, were you able to minister as a priest when you were in the Bahamas as well? That's exactly what I was doing. I would privilege to preside at Mass, um, you know, the, the usual sacramental ministries. 
it, it was wonderful. And it, because you moved around a lot, the bishop actually had a small four-seat plane. It's the first time in my life I had ever flown on that small an aircraft mm-hmm. because that's the only way you could get mm-hmm. people from here to there quickly where he needed them. Mm-hmm. A lot of that arranging. Ba- back up and tell pe- tell the listeners what the what the tertian ship is, what the tertiary is. Oh, I'm sorry. I did, I don't typically do that, but I did that today. That's okay. Yeah, I know. It's, and it's... At the end of Jesuit training, um, there's a second opportunity to reimmerse yourself in the spiritual exercises, which are the heart of our spiritual tradition. So you make the full 30-day retreat. Then there's that um, exercise I was talking about. There's a little bit of intense study of the constitutions of the order. And then there was, it was just really nice. Most of us had been engaged for a number of years in various apostolic activities. So a lot of what we did in the two summers was to just share um, our experiences, how we were finding God through the, the service we were trying to provide God's people. And, you know, the challenges of that, some of the... I remember being very, the first summer, being very moved by hearing two or three of my fellow tertians talk about the death of a parent. Mm. First time they had a in their lives that they had experienced that and how it had touched them. And in between the first and the second summer, my own father passed away. And mm. it was as though the Lord in his typically dental way was kind of saying, you know, Father John, I'm going to prepare you for something that's coming in your life. That's going to be very important. And it helped a lot to have heard them talk about that. Now, when you completed all the training, you <clears throat> pardon me, immediately went into teaching at the university level, didn't you? I did. I um, had a, a tenure-track position at Loyola University of Chicago and taught there for a period of about 14, 15 years. The last three and a half years, I was an associate dean. We have a training program for Jesuits there where they do two years of philosophy and one year of theology. So I was the academic dean for that particular Now, were program. you on loan to the Chicago province at that time? Kind of. The fact was that the two provinces at that point had merged their training of Jesuits. So it was very important for the provincials from both provinces to assure proper staffing. And that was why um, my own provincial was very um, enthusiastic about the mission to Loyola, that I could teach some of the scholastics. I would live with them the same way I had done when I was at the University of Detroit. And eventually uh, moved into that um, administrative position. So you were giving to the men coming after you what you received. I couldn't put it better, and I felt so grateful to have an opportunity to do that because I was so grateful to the Jesuits who had done that for me when I was a scholastic. So how you were at uh, Loyola of Chicago, said 14 years. Yeah, then I, um, when I finished that little administrative work and I felt my teaching was slipping into the the temptation that I think all university professors have of, you know, dust off your notes. It's always worked in the past. I thought I needed something to revive that teaching. So that's when I looked for the first time into coming down here to Texas A&M University. Why did you choose Texas A&M? Because they had the best program and still do in the world for... The research on shipwrecks as a historical resource. 
And I had hoped all my life to get into that if I could. And I proposed again to my Jesuit superior, would it be all right to take a year or so um, sitting on the graduate courses at Texas A&M and gain a new credential that then I could bring back just to kind of revive my teaching. If I remember right from our previous conversation, this was like in the 1997-1998 school year. You remember very well. Well, I, I wrote it down. <laughs> that helps the memory. That sure does. <laughs> Can I ask a question? Father, Father John, now, Renaissance and Reformation history, is, I mean, that's a big field. So how did what you were, how did your specialization in that field kind of lead you to shipwrecks? Or was that, had you always been interested in ships from a very young age? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it was more the, the latter that I had been interested in. The underwater world, my mother used to blame Jacques Cousteau for that. Oh, too. sure, sure. I, I think it was a glass-bottom boat ride at Silver Springs, Florida. But <laughs> somewhere along the line, that particular facet of our world became very interesting. Then with the historical training, it seemed to me kind of natural that that's the great material resource that can enrich our understanding of an integral dimension of history, you know, the economy. UPS still says they run... Well, they used to say they run the tightest ship in the shipping mm -hmm. business, though they didn't ship anything. They put it on airplanes. But You probably had read some Ferdinand Braudel and I, his Mediterranean world at some point in time. I did. I had to read it for my—I remember most vividly reading it for my comprehensive examinations sure, sure. during my Ph.D. studies. But I, what I did when I came here was immediately contact the medieval specialist who covered— all kinds of interesting areas like Byzantine shipwrecks, Viking shipwrecks. And he got all the way up into that period when the Italians, particularly the Venetians, played such a critical role in trade in Braudel's Mediterranean world. So mm -hmm. I thought there was a natural line of development from what I had been doing to this new area. And that particular professor has become a lifelong friend. So it, it worked better than I could have ever imagined. Wow. So what ha basically happened is you sort of crossed the, the border between history and archaeology. Exactly. And to my mind, that border is very fuzzy. Um, I know that it, today archaeology is often, as an academic discipline, falls into the anthropology departments and more of the social science. But I do think that there's a strongly historical dimension, studying the material remains of human culture and putting it in context. I think what they tend to look for, what the historians look for is both continuity and change. I think anthropologists focused a lot on long-term continuities or patterns of behavior in human mm -hmm. culture, but uh, sister disciplines, if, yeah. if there is a border. We'll get back to that in a little bit. But you, after you spent your year here, you went off and had another adventure. Yeah. Well, I, I had many adventures. Are you referring to the summer or referring to the... You just tell, just in general. So as part of the year here, I, that professor was finishing the excavation of a Byzantine shipwreck in off the coast of Turkey in the summer of 1998. That ship sank around the year 890. And he asked me if I wanted to come and work on that excavation for about a 12-week period over the summer. And I, I said, 
are you, first of all, I said, are you serious? And then I picked myself up off the floor and said, yes, I would very much like to come. So it was an extraordinary experience. Did you get to do the dives and everything too? I did. At least once a day, six days a week, some days, twice a day, six days a week. Um, and I think I mentioned to you, to me, it was the most extraordinary commute to work I've ever had <laughs> in my life. It was just very gently gliding down through a hundred feet of this beautiful, rich blue Mediterranean water. Um, there was a small ledge where we kept a lot of tools and things. And then as you continued to kind of drift down over the edge of the ledge, the entire ship opened up in view as it um, was kind of half buried down this very gentle slope. So the ship was fairly well preserved in the uh, in the bottom of the Mediterranean there. It was extremely well preserved. It was carrying about 12 to 1300 jars of wine. And what's what's the technical word for that because we talked about that. They're called amphoras because they have two handles. You can hold them uh, with both handles and a very traditional type of jar to use for wine. It, it's probably a jug, a jar that, that was probably at use in Jesus's time as well. Exactly. There are, even in the Byzantine period, when they show um, the miracle of the wedding feast at Cana, if you look at some Byzantine mosaics, you'll see when Jesus tells them to fill the jars with water, you'll see them assembling a group of amphoras for that purpose. Mm. And so how many how many uh, amphora were there down there? Between 1,200 and 1,300, we estimate there were over 900 that were in, well enough preserved that you could tell the shape and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and you brought some of those to the surface. Yeah, we had to clean all of that off. And the service that they provided was to bury the wood of the ship, the, the very bottom, into the silt and sand, which then protects the wood from wood-boring mollusks and things Mm -hmm. that tend to attack it if it's above the sea bottom. So once again, the level of preservation of that wood, you know, 12, 1300 years old, was extremely high. And there was still wine in those. There were a couple that were well enough sealed that there was (laughs) wine, yeah. I did not taste it. I have to say some of the, my fellow, the very intelligent people, but it, at that point, some of us begin to wonder, and they said it was not a good vintage. Uh, it, it, I think you said it tasted a little bit like Retsina. Yes, it did, in, uh, in part because they would seal the fabric of the amphora to make sure it didn't leak at all. They would use um, pine resin for that. So this tradition of Retsina is very old in the Mediterranean world. And those of you who haven't had it, it I would just as soon drink turpentine. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes hard to tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. So you spent that summer doing that, and then you you went off and taught for a while, and then you came back and did some more stuff for them, right? I did. I taught for a while, then I came back um, three years ago, I think it was, and I had a couple of books I was finishing up at that time. So the nautical program in archaeology and the Institute of Nautical Archaeology, they're two separate Um, entities, welcomed me back, um, gave me an office to use at that time. I did a little bit of lecturing, um, you know, as kind of a guest lecture on occasion in some of the courses. And I was able to finish up those two books uh, over the course of that year and then went back to Loyola for one last year in Chicago 
before I came back here again two years ago. And all your time that you've been here, you have been still ministering as a priest. I have, and I, thank you for mentioning that. It gives me a chance to thank. If any of those people are listening, it's been so gratifying. I think that's one of the biggest reasons I've come back regularly, tried to to um, work out a way to do so, because um, I've been able to combine in a really gratifying way the academic side of my life and the pastoral side of my life. And I'm so grateful to the people of the Catholics of this community. I've now had an opportunity, I think, to celebrate Mass in all of the local churches except for Santa Teresa because my Italian's fluent, but my Spanish is all confused with my Italian. <laughs> but all of those communities have been so welcoming, and in a special way, I um, twice lived at St. Anthony's in Bryan and just have the highest respect for that Catholic community. So at, what you're really saying is the Jesuits have an, an, an active apostolate rather than a contemplative type of apostolate. And you're, you have been able to integrate those two. And uh, those people who have heard you uh, at, at the various parishes can testify to the fact that you are ministering to people here as, as well as on the campus. Yes, you, you describe it very well. Um, we are apostolic uh, as a religious order. Um, we try and engage with culture um, so that then we can better serve God's people. And it also creates these wonderful um, opportunities, all those institutions I mentioned, and even here, um, you also meet very intelligent non-Catholics and even non-believers, but be if you establish what my good friend Father Tom Tobin called street credentials as a scholar, then they'll talk to you about all the dimensions of your life in the most respectful way. And what they know can enrich your own service because they bring things to you. The individual who some people may know, the Jesus boat, it was found by the Sea of Galilee um, some years ago, and it's now in a museum in Israel. But the man who excavated that is a Jewish scholar here at Texas A&M, and he loves to talk about Catholicism. In fact, he was kind of hoping um, to meet the Pope one day. So we have these wonderful conversations mm -hmm. like that. You were telling me, too, when we had our conversation, that you worked with some graduate students at Texas A&M, and they gave you a special present at one point in time. Yeah, it's another extremely gratifying experience. Every year, the program in April offers um, what they call a shipwreck day, where they try and bring the community in and anybody who would be interested. Um, there's one formal lecture, and then the rest of the day are activities mostly organized for children and organized by the graduate students, and then they also execute the program. You know, teaching them, showing them little skills, making sales, um, showing them how to do measurements. So they always have a T-shirt to identify the various staff members who are um, engaged in the program. And they left me one at my office door, and I was so touched. And I turned it to the back, and it says chaplain, which I was very touched by. Well, but you, you weren't... Uh preaching to them. There was you, nothing... You were... You, what's the old... It's 
Preach the gospel. Always use words if you have to, right? Exactly. It's, and to their credit, again, um, that once, you know, I had worked with some of them and talked to them about their interest. Um, but then as it, it's just that kind of wonderful human interaction through a shared intellectual interest that leads to all these other great things. We've got, we've got about a minute and a half left. Uh, any last words and maybe a comment on how unique it is for a Jesuit to be teaching at a secular university? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I, statistically, I don't know. I, I do know that it's Jesuits have done this in the past. Most of my life was spent at Jesuit universities. And again, I can't say enough wonderful, good things about the students I met over the course of all those years. They're such a credit to our Catholic community. So much fun and to work with so easy. But this just, I see, just see it as kind of expanding our horizons. I always loved the Acts of the Apostles. Um, there's that constant movement of the gospel outward from Jerusalem until it reaches Rome, which is for that particular group of people, the center of the world. So that's what it means, that you're, the gospel always, it's so rich, keeps moving outward. Okay. My um, guest today has been Father John McManaman, a Jesuit, and you can find a lot about him if you just Google him. And uh, we will be back next week with another program, and I'll be back in a month. And if you have any guests that you'd like me to interview, please let us know. And remember, when choosing between the values of heaven and the values of earth, always round up. 